And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. And there was morning and there was evening the first day. In the very beginning of creation, think about it, there was distinction and there was the passing of time. And with distinction and with the passing of time, there is also finitude. And finitude entails mortality. Scholars have long debated the exact meaning of Jesus' baptism by John in the Jordan, which Mark calls a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But one thing is clear, and that is that this baptism is a public beginning. It is the beginning of something, the presence of God in Jesus in the world. And so this new thing implies also an ending. It is the end of the time that went before. Christians adopted the practice of baptism marking such, just such newness of life for every single person. We say in baptism that we are buried with Christ in his death and by it we share in his resurrection and through it we are reborn by the Holy Spirit. Friends, think about this. Baptism is about drowning more than about bathing. It's about the sanctification of life more than a doorway to moral rectitude. It's about death more than purity. I know that some of you have watched the Netflix series called House of Cards, and you might remember a scene that's haunted me from that first season. One congressman is trying to help another with his problem with prostitutes and drugs and alcohol, and he appears to be being kind, and he gives him coffee, and he gives him aspirin, he draws him a nice hot bath, gets him in the bath, and everything seems to be he's being very kind. Suddenly he slams down a razor blade slams down a razor blade and says, the choice is yours. All of that other stuff is just thinning your blood to make it easier if you decide to take the coward's way out. Are you going to shape up or are you going to end it? And that's not obviously a complete analogy for baptism, thank God. <laughs> but it's a powerful reminder that whether we know it or not, uh, we're talking about choosing life, choosing the way of life over the way of death and marking it in baptism. When we mark it in babies, as we will do later this morning, we're marking something that has to be chosen over and over and over our whole lives long, making that choice for life whenever we remember what really matters to us, when we engage the practices of faith, the liberating practices of faith, and allow that care, those cares and concerns to shape our choices. Whether we know it or not, every major choice is at some level bound up with the reality of our own mortality. Will we choose the way of life or the way of death? This was brought home to me most powerfully in a recently published book by the popular writer and Boston doctor Atul Gawande. The book is really good. And it's, being, it's called Being Mortal, and it's subtitled Medicine and What Matters at the End, a truly extraordinary book that looks at lots of realities surrounding the end of life, around medical care, around assisted living, around what doctors can do to be uh, more, more, um, less, less um, expansive in their hopes for patients and more honest about what to expect. But what is pertinent for every one of us today is Dr. Gawande's 
recognition that much end-of-life care boils down to the lowest strata of what Maslow called the hierarchy of needs. And it comes down to physiological survival and safety, food, water, and the like, and law and order and so on, as the sort of basis for, for what life is. And Gawande says this the reality is much more complex, and we know this to be true. People readily demonstrate a willingness to sacrifice their safety and survival for the sake of something beyond themselves, such as family or country or justice. And this is true regardless of age. Surely the editors of Charlie Hedbo were in that category in some sense. And so were the thousands of people who went on the streets of Paris with terrorists still at large to say, wait a minute, there's a value here that is worth risking my safety and security for. Possibly that's even true, however misguided, of the terrorists themselves. The point is that safety and survival may be at the lowest level of Maslow's hierarchy, but it's not what really constitutes or matters for life for any of us. Attaining personal goals, the pursuit of ideals, relationships for their own sake, self-determination and the like, these are things that really matter to most of us. Dr. Gawande tells a number of stories of how the end of life can be managed toward personal goals rather than simply the avoidance of pain or physiological survival, simply being kept safe so we can get more medical treatment. One tells the story of one, lots of stories, but one story of a 74-year-old man called Jack who was found to have a mass growing in the spinal cord of his neck. And the neurosurgeon told him that if he didn't have surgery, 100% guaranteed he would be quadriplegic. And if he did have surgery, maybe 20% guaranteed uh, possibility of being quadriplegic. But either way, a lot of pain and uh, adjustment and difficulty in his future. And he talked with his daughter, and eventually his daughter got the courage to ask his father what he really wanted. It's, a, it's a, actually a very difficult question for any of us to answer. She said, I need to understand how much you're willing to go through to have a shot at being alive and what level of being alive is tolerable to you. Now she was shocked by his answer because he had shown no apparent interest in these things up to then. But he said that if he was able to eat chocolate ice cream and watch football on television, then he would be willing to go through a lot of pain and stay alive for that. Now, she was shocked because her academic father had never shown interest in football or actually ice cream particularly. But if you think about it, it's pretty good. He's saying he wanted to be able to swallow, he wanted to be able to taste, he wanted to be able to see, and he wanted to be able to understand, understand something of what he was seeing. That's actually not a bad uh, answer. He was going to remain severely disabled for many months and possibly forever, forever um, because of some complications in the surgery that he decided to have. Uh, went ahead and had it. There were major complications. Surgeons said to his daughter, we need to go back in if we're going to save his life. And her instinct was to let him go. But then she realized her father had told her what, she, what he wanted. And she asked the doctor, I know it's going to be difficult, but will he be able to swallow and taste? Yes. Will he be able to watch television? Yes. She said, go ahead and go back in. And they went back in, and he lived for another 10 years with lots of medical complications, with pain, with difficulty. But in that same 10 years, he wrote two books and a host of scientific articles until the day came when his medical condition was such 
that he could no longer swallow by himself. And they were talking about feeding tubes. And she said, enough. That's not, I know what he wants. I know what he wants. Enough. And they called in hospice care. He got to grips with what life was for him so that he could govern, in some sense, the choices. So it was about life. In another story, Dr. Gawandi tells of getting a call one day from the husband of his daughter's piano teacher. She was in her 60s. His name was Peg. Apparently, Peg was in the hospital. Turns out that what everyone had diagnosed as arthritis was, in fact, a soft tissue cancer eating into her pelvis. Dr. Gawandi says she endured a year in hell, surgery, chemotherapy, months of hospitalization. She'd loved yoga. She'd loved cycling. She'd loved walking her Shetland sheepdog with her husband. She loved playing music. She loved her beloved students. And she'd had to let go of all of that. Her horizons or her choices were narrowing really fast. She had to let go of much of what made life worth living. Nevertheless, she recovered enough to resume teaching on a limited basis until the cancer returned with virulence about 18 months later. She knew she was dying. She was, by all accounts in this book, in despair. She didn't have much hope. She didn't even want to mess with hospice. She just wanted it over at that point. But Gawandi and her husband persuaded her to try hospice for a while, and hospice were promising that they would work with her to get her one good day. And she eventually said, okay. And hospice went to work, and first... The first thing they did, mostly, was getting a good day by managing her difficulties, stuff that's pretty obvious, you know, a bed downstairs so you don't have to do the stairs, a chamber pot next to the bed so you don't have to worry about a fall and maneuver to the, to the bathroom and all that sort of thing. And as these fairly simple fixes got sorted out, so her anxiety and her worry began to be reduced to where she could start thinking about what was life? What, how did she want to leave, lead her remaining days? And she decided she was going to stay at home, and if there was any possibility of it, she was going to teach. She wanted to take leave of her friends. She wanted to give parting advice to her students, one of which was Gawande's daughter. And hospice helped her manage her medications so that she could do some teaching, even with real pain. And Gawande's daughter, that girl, and a few others, after a couple of months of this, gave a concert in her living room, Chopin, Beethoven, for the teacher they loved. And she told them, took them aside one by one and put her arms around them and said, you are really special. Thank you. And she did what she needed to do. Gawandi says Peg got to fulfill her dying role. She got to do so right up to three days before the end when she fell into delirium and passed in and out of consciousness. These stories have endings, and those endings are important to the whole story. Not all bits of our stories matter in the same way. Knowing what we want in the face of death is something that we can certainly think about, but like Jack, we may be fairly clear fairly quickly, but like Peg, we might not be able to predict until the horizon is really close. Earlier in life, our tasks, desires, purposes, and meanings are usually different than they will be when we're really facing death. Uh, when we're parenting, when we're working on a career, there are different answers to what constitutes life, perhaps. But every day, we are asked in one way or another the question of our baptism. Every day, we're going to help raise these children and raise one another to answer that question by choosing life.
Will you choose life? The alternative might not be the razor blade, but there are plenty of choices that are just as cowardly. Running away, fleeing from challenge, numbing ourselves with television or, in my case, trash novels or whatever it is, or allowing others to be the ultimate author of our stories rather than us being the author of our story in union with Christ. These are ways of not choosing life, which we consider a lot during Lent and don't need to go into now. For now, in the very beginning of creation, there was distinction and the passing of time. With distinction and the passing of time, there is also necessarily finitude, and finitude entails mortality. Every day, we're invited to live out the consequence of our baptism, discover anew, choose anew what really matters to us in the face of our own death, never more so when that death is on a very close horizon. Jack and Pat chose life, and every time we make that same choice, if we listen, we might hear the love at the heart of the universe whispering, you are my child, you are beloved, you chose life, with you I am well pleased. I offer this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.